0: Hi, I'm Jana Panaritas, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from people just like you who share caregiving stories from the field, how you cope, what you've learned, and how care has changed your life. We also hear from professionals in the field of aging and people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about what it means to get older. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. For most of us, choosing a restaurant, a vacation spot, or even what theme park to take your kids to is a pretty straightforward process. But for the three million families in the United States with autistic children, that process can be daunting. Just ask today's guest, whose son was diagnosed with autism at 18 months old. Tuffer Words is an autism dad who joins us from Chester Springs, Pennsylvania to share his family's caregiving journey with their son, Kirby, and to tell us about his new website and mobile app, Autism Village, designed to help families find autism-friendly places and services. Tougher words, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Welcome to the AgeWise podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: So before we talk about Autism Village, if we can, I'd like to go back to the time of your son Kirby's diagnosis. What do you remember about how you and your wife, Jana, who has the same name as me, (laughs) (laughs) what do you remember about how you and your wife reacted well, geez, there's a lot there um, yeah. try to
1: touch on, you know, try and touch on a, a couple things, I guess, because I get this question a lot, especially from new parents or parents that are maybe trying to decide whether or not they believe maybe the, the diagnosis or what they're seeing. And so I would say that the diagnosis itself, we were very fortunate. And I wrote a number of blogs about sort of these things, too, that are on the website um, at mm-hmm. com. So, but I'll try and summarize it for your audience. At about 18 months old, we had had uh, our first child and our second child within 11 months, and Kirby was about 18 months old, and I was traveling a lot for my job, so we decided to see if we could get Janice some help, and um, we ended up with a young lady from New Zealand coming to do some nannying for us. and. She had worked in a preschool. Her name's Nikki, and she had worked in a preschool, and they had had some children with autism. So we were really, really lucky in that. Uh, essentially, Nikki uh, it was familiar to her, and so she brought to attention to our friends that she thought maybe Kirby was on the spectrum. We didn't call the spectrum then, but and they encouraged her to talk to us and supported her through that. And then that led to us talking to Easter Seals, and you know that was tricky because his parents you're sort of dealing with a lifelong diagnosis, so. I was resistant at some level. I think uh, many parents are. And I continued to push the interviewer, or the observer from Easter Seals about why she felt that Kirby was on the spectrum. I mean, he's only 18 months old, right? Yeah. And eventually she said to me something which at the time uh, really frustrated me, and now I completely understand, 16, or 14 years later, whatever. Uh, and that is, listen, I've been doing this a long time and I can just tell. Mm-hmm. And, of course, she could just tell and so could Nikki just tell. And now I can just tell because I'm in a, you know, and so there's but that's tough when you're a parent. So that's the first part. So then I wrote a chapter for a book called The Gift of the Hit about the way parents react and what the, you know, emotions are around that. And part of the thing is, is that when we get a diagnosis, we all have this sort of imaginary future child. When our, when our children are born, yeah. they're going to be astronauts, physicists, so mm-hmm. and you get a special needs diagnosis. And that imaginary future child kind of dies all at once instead of over 20 years by a thousand cuts as we do to our parents, right? That, mm-hmm. then they kind of... years on, they're kind of like, well, yeah, I I like you. You're nothing like I thought you were going to be when you were born, but you know what? You're all right. Um, But, you know, when you get a special needs diagnosis, that future is just gone immediately. And so some parents struggle with letting go of that, I think. And it's sort of a grieving process of the imaginary future, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. And so I'll say that about it. And then I'll finalize by saying the advice I give parents now is Listen, the worst case scenario is is that you get a diagnosis and maybe it, you're over-diagnosing, but you're going to get more support and it's not going to hurt your child. But if you get less, you're losing precious time between the time they're born and the time sort of when we're in our late 20s, when kind of our brain is set and we are who we are. That's an important time to help these kids make progress and so i encourage parents not to resist the diagnosis but to get fully engaged and then if it turns out that it's not correct or not that much the worst case is you just spend more time with your your child helping them and educating them that's okay
0: Mm -hmm. and did your wife react similar to you or how did she react
1: well we're a We're a pretty good team. I mean, we've stayed together, obviously. Um, you, you may know the stat: 68% of couples that get a, a special needs diagnosis divorced by the time the child's eight. So wow, I didn't know that. Wow. Yes, you know, 68% by the time the child's eight. And so, unfortunately, it's the dads who mostly kind of go. And the majority, you know, vast majority of these kids are being raised by single moms. And studies show that they often have a neurotypical peer more than 50% of the time and and hold down The neurotypical a a peer
0: i'm sorry could you explain that
1: <laughs> neurotypical <laughs> peers so so you know uh, a brother or sister that's just normal i see we don't okay. say normal okay. normal's a drier setting you
0: right know. neurotypical okay
1: although you know one could argue with the prevalence now of autism that what's neurotypical today tomorrow might be reversed but Uh, in any case, they're raising a brother or sister, and they're holding down, on average, one and a half jobs to make ends meet. And so there's a vast population of single moms out there trying to make this work, right? So that's noteworthy. Um, We didn't go that route, obviously. So we worked together as a team, and we're pragmatists. And so we got, you know, we just accepted it. And one of the wonderful things that comes out of that is that then you can celebrate every day. Instead of kind of Back to that death five thousand cuts over twenty years comment. Instead of being kind of disappointed that our kids aren't working out the way we planned every day, you know, we're celebrating progress every day. So once you let go, there there's a beautiful silver lining in that.
0: Right. And so, I'm guessing your ch- your that your your kid feels that positive energy and that's a plus. Like any kid I think would. So. Yeah. Yeah. Think so. so the autism spectrum is pretty broad. Can you just, for folks who don't know, describe, describe the different types and where Kirby falls on the spectrum? Yeah. So um, the the the
1: phrase autism spectrum um, or ASD stands for autism spectrum disorders mm-hmm. is relatively new. You know, and likely some of the levels of diagnosis that we're seeing now are a result of uh, more awareness and a broader definition. Mm -hmm. So it's one in 42 kids now being born is being diagnosed on the spectrum and three quarters generally roughly are boys. So it's really a big big issue for, for boys. The spectrum is quite wide. So at the one end, you have people that are maybe just socially awkward. They don't get the social cues. In the past, maybe they were they were sort of the geeks or whatever. you know we go back to the big Bang theory with sort of a bunch of scientists that maybe are on on the spectrum at different levels and sort of the cool neurotypical girl you know that mm-hmm. is their translator
0: mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm.
1: um you know, and at the other end of the spectrum, you've got kids that are uh, nonverbal. It's pretty common for the autism stuff to be mixed with some other. Disability, um, mm-hmm. uh, commonly uh, seizures, disabilities that include seizures and stuff. So you know at the far end of the spectrum, you've got nonverbal, non-social, potentially you know in, su- fairly significantly intellectually delayed kids maybe that have something else for kids. So it is a very wide spectrum. I guess I'd say Kirby somewhere in the middle. I mean he's verbal. He's not wildly conversational. He doesn't really have any social issues though. Um, gets along with everybody, certainly his learning is delayed. And one of the things that we, you know, that kind of I've come to think about is is that kind of our education system is, is a little wacky in some ways in terms of when we kind of, when we start and stop trying to educate kids. Mm-hmm. Because essentially what we know from brain scans now with the autism population is, is that The part of the brain that's lit up is kind of the core and the stem and not so much the frontal cortexes. And of course, that part of the brain is the part that doesn't have any language. It's the oldest part. It's fight or flight. The limbic brain, right? Yeah. The limbic brain, right? Mm -hmm. So so autists tend to be more limbic. And the way the brain builds is that the brain cells swim out from the center, essentially. So there's a view that in the autistic population, they haven't swum out successfully to really get the typical prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. development.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, of
1: course, the prefrontal cortex undergoes the last major makeover in the brain and brain development, which happens between puberty and sort of late 20s, which is why, you know, we have college-age kids jumping off of roots into three inches of snow, right? The uh-huh. reasoning isn't, isn't quite there, right? We uh-huh. all know about the 20-year-old making bad decisions or whatever. So, But we stop really trying to educate the special needs kids at the end of middle school and we switch to kind of life skills-based education huh. when there's probably a possibility and potential to keep educating them probably you know into their 30s and these kids their frontal cortexes are developing behind but they will continue to develop into their 30s so anyhow there's a you know some thinking about brain development and and where curvy is in the spectrum is probably about the middle and you know we're going to keep up the intervention and keep helping them to grow right as long as we
0: can. Right. So, so how old is he now? How old is Kirby now? 15?
1: Yes, he's 15.
0: He's 15. So, of course, your life has changed dr- dramatically since the diagnosis. Can you give us an idea of how it's changed outside of the, <laughs> the, uh, the website you started, etc.? You were traveling a lot.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of funny. I mean, Jenna says to me, you know, you you remember when we got this diagnosis and we were talking about it that we said we weren't going to be the family that made our whole lives around autism. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, you you said to me, she says, you know, and then she says, but you, Tougher, have have actually started this nonprofit and and turned it around. So it's kind of funny marital anecdote there, but uh-huh. <laughs> everything everything changes. It really does, and you really have to get your mind into the fact that you're in this new mode. So. Yeah, I left the job that I was in, which was a global job with lots of travel, so I could be closer and spend more time with the family. And was that hard know, for you? And, um, I don't know that it was hard. It's just different. I mean, you know, you're on sort mm-hmm. of one career path and then you have to make some pragmatic decisions. In the end, maybe I would say it was it was better in, in many respects. And so that changed my certainly changed my professional path, if you will. And Jana's uh, background is in hotel and restaurant management and so forth, and and really this meant that she changed her kind of um, professional trajectory too to be at home more and focus on curvy more. So, um, and there's a little resetting of of your own kind of how you measure yourself in that, yeah, and then, of course, Kirby's a happy guy, he's a very busy guy,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: he's a very curious guy, so there's a whole series of blog posts about the day that you know he tried to make his thomas train train stack smoke, so he you know lit a <laughs> bunch of trains on fire, and, oh, wow. you know we had a house full of smoke or. The day he decided that he was really into Frozen, so he used uh, baby powder to make it snow in, in the house. And,
0: <laughs> wow! You know,
1: So Jenna loves to cook, so all of her carefully curated spice collection gets mixed up into boxes to make train cars. Full oh my! Of stuff. So, so you have all different stuff, and yeah. then of course you have. In our case, he has an older brother who's neurotypical.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: you know, then there's all the thinking about making sure the curvy doesn't expand to fill all the available air and energy in the room, right. and, and what's it like to be the other one? Yeah, what is it so like to really, him? Well, he, you know, they're buds, but they're. It's almost like raising two only children. They intersect and they they enjoy each other, and Sandy will certainly come to Kirby's defense and so forth uh you know but at times he's also you know I think kind of feels like Kirby is the tail wagging the family dog you know so it's a tricky it's a tricky thing uh we've worked hard to try and make sure that Danny doesn't feel like this was a burden on him, so that later in life, I mean, as parents, we have to think about what happens when we're gone. And Zandy yeah. is what what is here for Kirby. So mm-hmm. it's a tricky thing being the sibling, for yeah sure. um, Your son's
0: name is Zandy.
1: Zandy, yeah, that's a
0: great name. Is it's a, a
1: nickname. It's a, nickname. From a Family name.
0: Okay, yeah. I was just gonna say that's too cool to be anything but a family name or a nickname. <laughs>
1: We started from the nickname and worked back. Like we knew as Andy, we wanted to call him Zandy, and then we're like, okay, what can we use that will get us there? So, anyway.
0: <laughs> so what if any resources did you have in those early days?
1: Boy, you know the not, the amount of resources we had, the amount of resources today are just. And then there were parents that had gone before us that had really were trudging through the yeah. the resource desert. I mean, we did not have a lot, but there was enough to grab onto that we were able to try and inform ourselves and be, you know, we were curious people. We took a very positive, how do we make the best of this kind of approach? So we found resources and it was, you know, a friend from my professional life whose wife was a special ed attorney or is a special ed attorney in Connecticut, who was the one who coached me as I now do other parents about, don't worry about an overdiagnosis. You know, as I said, you know, Mm -hmm. better to have too much support than too little. So, you know, we had support like that. We were able to find the Easter Seals organization. That led to what there was in the school system. But, you know, it was pre-iPad, pre-iPhone. right? And so devices, there were very expensive, specialized devices to help kids. A lot of the resources were analog, you know, little cards and print pictorial cards mm-hmm. to right. help the kids. Flash then, cards, yeah, you know, they call them tax cards so uh-huh. that they can make sentences out of pictures. So, you know, all that changed dramatically with the advent of the iPad. And likewise, the amount of presence on social media certainly has grown a lot. There are more autism-related nonprofits in the United States than any other category. So <laughs> it shows you that there's wow. a lot going on there. So it's really exploded A parent starts today also, you know, on a journey of discovery, but with a lot more stuff in the support area than we had, for sure.
0: Mm -hmm. I did not know this, but autism is the fastest growing developmental disorder in the United States.
1: So in my birth year, it was one in 2,500 diagnosis. I'm 51. Mm -hmm. So now it's one in 42. And, you know, there's... An MIT researcher hypothesizing that it'll be half of all births by 2020 or 2025. So, you know, it is growing fast. Of course, it's a wide spectrum, as we said. So, you know, you've met one person with autism. You've met one person with autism.
0: Right. So tell us about the Autism Village Project, I guess you could say, how it started, its genesis, and its progress. Take us through that.
1: Yeah, so I guess I would say that, that it really started at the transition meeting with our school district when Kirby was going to be of school age. Mm-hmm. And Jenna and I went, um, we left Kirby with a babysitter, and we went to find out what the school program might be like. And when we got there, we were confronted with a room full of women with children at their feet, typically their autistic child, and often with a peer, brother, or sister. And, you no, know, it was like sort of walking into a land of single mom zombie families. And I remarked to Jana, you know, the tragedy of this is that given our background, our experience, our professional life, we're going to advocate for Kirby and he's going to get great support. But, you know, there's probably somebody in this room that has a kid that could go further who's just so stretched, so thin that she's just not going to be able to advocate and get the level of intervention for her kid who maybe could go further. Mm-hmm. than Kirby could. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that was the genesis because essentially I tinkered around with how to use technology, my background technology, technology startups, media. So how can we use some of the mobile web technologies to support this community? Lots of people were working on educational materials, and causes and cure research was common in the big nonprofits, but a lot, nobody was really working on the day to day practical challenge. Mm-hmm. And as we went through the process, what I realized that the first thing autism parents talked about when we met was do you know of, or where do you go for, you know, a dentist, a doctor, a restaurant, a safe playground or park, a school, a teacher, whatever it was. That was the parents' water cooler. So we looked at and said, so "Well, how can we use technology to kind of?" preserve that and democratize that, and make it available to everybody. And we were Yelp and TripAdvisors users and it became quickly obvious to us that one way to do it would be to use a mobile approach where parents could share those ideas, ratings, reviews, and others could discover them that was location-based, that was in their hand. So essentially, Autism Village is an app and web for iPhone and Android and for iOS and Android and uh, the web that Provides a global water cooler for the autism community. And not just parents are using it, but adults on the autism spectrum are putting in employers or pubs or restaurants that they find more or less friendly towards them as a place to work or congregate. So it's been really exciting. It works everywhere in the world. We've got about 25,000 active users a day sharing stuff and wow. discovering stuff. And- wow. It's a lot of fun.
0: It sounds it sounds great. And it did it start with the Kickstarter campaign, and is that still going? It did. The Kickstarter is not
1: still going, but okay. it was how we started. Kickstarter lasts thirty to sixty days. I think ours was forty five days long, about two and a half years ago. And I had been, you know, working on things, but wanted to really kick off the project with something that really uh, galvanized uh, the community around it. So we did the Kickstarter. It's the largest. Crowdfunding that's been done for an autism cause. Mind you, they're all much smaller than floating kittens or, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, a games or whatever. So we raised about $75,000 on Kickstarter, and that's what allowed us to build the initial versions of the mobile apps.
0: Mm-hmm. And is it widely available now?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely free, and it works on the web at autismvillage.com, and it's a free download at the iTunes store or the Google Play store. And so it's a free resource to the community. What we do is is that we also have built a training a basic training program about yeah, how saw to that.
0: for businesses yeah, interact. Yeah, I saw
1: that. Yeah, for businesses, right? It's called it's at autismfriendly.com so it's an online self-paced training takes less than an hour. And it helps the people that work in the businesses that serve the public to understand the autism community and how to be successful. So, as I said, in my birth year, it was one in 2,500. And if you think about, for example, I'll I'll pick on museums for a minute. If you think about museums, the volunteers who are docents at most museums... Our grandparent age, so they did not grow up with this. So right. when they see a child on the autism spectrum struggling with um, a crowded room or a loud noise or you know or something like that, they see a poorly behaved child or a bad parenting or indulgent parenting job, and they don't understand the spectrum because they didn't grow up with it. So one of our big supporters at AutismFriendly.com are museums that get the training to share with their volunteers and their staff. Likewise, restaurants, amusement parks, anybody that serves the general public can come in there. And we charge a small fee to businesses for the training. And that's what allows us to keep the main ratings and review service free.
0: Can you give us an example of the reaction that you've gotten from some families?
1: You know, if you look at our social media presence and the comments there, the comments, uh, we struggle a little bit in the Google Play Store because there's so many variants of Android phones that, the app doesn't always work perfectly, but we, we, you know, we try to respond to them. But everywhere else, if you look at the comments, you just see wonderful, quotable testimonials and ratings and reviews. And as I said, my background is media, specifically financial media. So I joke, it's much better to wake up every day and get love mail from families <laughs> who are using the app than it is to go to work and get hate mail from traders that the product has glitched or caused trouble. <laughs> But our parents just love what we do, and, and they tell us every day, and it's uh, it really keeps us going.
0: Well, you know, so many apps that are trying to make headway into the healthcare space, I don't know. I question the user-friendliness of them, what they're worth. I think the cool thing about this app is that it's very practical, and it was designed by someone who comes from the place of need. So I like the practical aspect of it. And I like the fact that it's kind of a Yelp for autistic families. It just, it's brilliant.
1: Well, thank you for saying it. That's exactly what we tried to do, right? We just tried to solve, uh, again, we just tried to apply technology to what the community was demonstrating that they needed whenever they met. So mm-hmm.
0: so I want to know more about Kirby. What are his interests besides wearing lots of hats at once, which I noticed <laughs> in the Kickstarter <laughs> yeah. campaign, which is so cute. I love that.
1: You hardly ever see Kirby without a hat or multiple hats. So <laughs> um, one of Kirby's things is, is that he's a very sensory-centric kid, and he loves which means he runs away. And and when he has an urge to run, I mean, he just needs to run. And he doesn't really pay attention to safety or direction or have a destination in mind. But uh, he's taken recently to wearing sort of... uh, a nautical captain's hat, which um, is quite helpful when I need to call in, you know, the National Guard. Well, I've never had to go to that level, but uh, to help search for him, because it's like, well, he's the kid wearing the captain's hat from Gilligan's Island or whatever. But anyhow, he does love his hats. He's a huge fan of, um, of trains and Thomas the Tank Engine in particular. And And in this group, in this population, are a lot of kids that love the cartoons that are essentially machines with faces so you have a huge thomas following bob the builder following you know these sort of things and the reason is simple uh facial expressions are very complex and difficult for these kids and in this case but they desire friends and they have the same need for friendship that we all do so a face that is Quite structured and codified, so that there's only so many expressions is easy for them to understand.
0: So he loves
1: that stuff, and uh, he's a member of a a Boy Scout troop for all kids with autism. Yeah, I read um, about
0: that. How'd you find that? Well, uh,
1: my younger son was interested in scouting. I never did it, and. When I called the local council, they asked if I had any other kids, I said I did, but the other one was uh, on the autism spectrum, and they said, wow, we have a dad who started a troop. So we found it that way, and it's Sandy's in kind of the partner, typical troop, and Mm -hmm. they go on camping trips together, and the typical kids are like big brothers that teach the kids with autism. The scouting allows folks with disabilities to continue past the age of 18, so um, we actually have found other troops in, in the Maryland area and across the country that were very progressive that have 50-year-olds that are on the spectrum that, you know, are still working on their requirements and working towards that stuff. It's a great program, and, of course, it's topical because it's on my mind given a lot of what's in the news cycle today. It's, uh, you know, scouting. I do not do scouting. I'm I'm not, as they say, a green-blooded scouter. Um <laughs> But uh, my own experience with my voice has been that the organization's been incredibly accepting and a wonderful resource to teach life skills and quality behaviors to both my special needs son and my typical son. So it's a great, he loves that. He loves to go and camp and do and all that.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that your social circle has changed a bit over the years how has it changed? And when you go out, how has your perspective shifted based on, you know, how folks around you respond to Kirby?
1: Yeah, so um, the isolation that comes with a shrinking social circle is is a challenge for the community in general. Mm -hmm. Um, We've done a little better there. We've got a good core group of friends, but it certainly, you know, has shrunk some. We don't get out as much. And we can't. It's hard to find babysitters for special needs kids that elope in the middle of the night or whatever. And, you know, and I'd say we're at the luckiest end of the spectrum, but there's a lot of very lonely, very isolated single moms, which is why the social media in the community is so strong. And It's, it's tough. It's tough for sure. And the trick is is that even the folks that are empathetic struggle to kind of understand the reality of day-to-day life with a special needs child. So it's tricky. I mean, it really is. And as far as my perspective going out, um, obviously I've become an advocate for acceptance. I also am pragmatic and understand that a kid having a sensory meltdown in in your restaurant is maybe difficult for your other customers, and how do you deal with that and so forth. So it's a tough time. For the most part, I'd say that we experience more acceptance than not. You know, I would say that the younger the folks are, you know, the better it gets, like the kids have grown up with these, uh-huh. you know, with these special needs kids. So in general, the, the millennial generation is more accepting maybe than, than the grandparent generation just because they understand it yeah, and, and so forth. And occasionally we have a bad experience, you know, and those make me angry and sad.
0: I can imagine. Can you give us an example?
1: Yeah, I would say that we were with the grandparents in Cape May, New Jersey, and we took Kirby out. Kirby loves to dance. He's got one of my friends who's a musician, and we take him and we dance. And we've had a number of experiences where folks have been critical of him or my parenting in that scenario. So, you know, we had had this example in Cape May where an older gentleman at a table there by the dance floor sort of did the you know, the circle with the finger and pointed at Kirby, you know, next to his head and pointed at Kirby, you know, and all Kirby was doing was dancing. He dances differently, but he was just having fun. And yeah. and I found that sad, uh, you know, insulting. I was angry about it. You know, we had another situation, which is quite interesting, where we were, had I had him out with the uh, our friend who plays music, and you know, we were we were in that sort of eight to midnight window. Kirby's a night owl; he doesn't sleep anyway,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: three four hours a night till he sleeps. Wow. And uh, you know, he he was dancing, and there was a table of young people there, and and a uh, young lady came over to where where we were sitting, and you know, and declared that she was a special ed uh, undergraduate at the local college, and that uh, what we were doing was cruel and. How could we keep him out? And you know, he'd been covering his ears, which is how he managed his sound level, and mm-hmm. and, and, re- and and really led into us for, for essentially being abusive parents to Kirby, when actually he was having the most fun he ever has with his uncle Dan playing music and doing all that. Yeah. So, um, so that was tough. I mean, that one had a positive outcome in that at the end of the night, Uncle Dan went over and explained to her, while your uh, motives might be great as a special ed undergraduate, you know, you're not a special ed parent, and you're not a special needs parent, and and here, let me tell you, you know, what you don't know about what just happened. Great. um, Yeah, I I think she and the entire table, who were all students in the same special ed department, took something away from that, that what they thought they saw and what was really happening weren't the same.
0: Well-meaning, too, probably, the criticism, but still. Sure was. Uh, Yeah. That's tricky.
1: Tricky would be a word we use a lot. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) tricky. By the way, for listeners, I want to remind everyone that Tuffer's wife has the same name as me. So when you hear him saying Jana, he's talking about his wife, not me. Very strange coincidence. Um, How have you changed over the years of being an autism dad?
1: Well, I definitely say that I have accepted a level of flexibleness that, maybe i didn't have i mean i i've always been uh geez i've always been a goer and a doer i started uh, you know a software company when i was in sixth grade that we sold early on and so i i've been a a student of business and technology and sort of uh had uh deep admiration for the leaders in the tech space people like steve jobs and so forth and Mm -hmm. imagine you know i would do great things one day i I didn't imagine it would be, you know, a social engineering project for the autism community, maybe. And I don't know if that even qualifies. But you do have to adjust, you know, your perspective on your ability to control and so forth. But there is a component of really coming, coming to understand what the phrase carpe diem means, because we live for the day here every day. And there's a release in that. But it's not always easy to let go of where you thought you were going or the level of control or the speed at which you can get there. and So I would say the biggest change in me is kind of a lot of work around my own ability to be flexible and adjust the play according to kind of what we're dealing with on that day.
0: Yeah. If Kirby doesn't sleep much, are you getting up in the middle of the night, the two of you?
1: <laughs> well, um, <laughs> Kirby's sleep pattern is a funny thing. I worked for a guy that only needed a, you know one sleep cycle. He slept four or five hours a night, and, and he didn't have a, a family or a spouse or anything. It mm-hmm. always seemed like he had a full day on me when he got to, to work, <laughs> so it prepared me well for Kirby. <laughs> um, there are lots of people that, that, of course, don't need a full night's sleep. That sort of one sleep cycle is enough. Kirby would be one of those. Uh-huh. Um, whether that's from the autism or just who he is, I don't know. So in the early days, we would do shift work. You know, uh, one of us would stay up late,
0: Mm -hmm. the
1: others would get up early, and we would each get kind of our eight hours, but, you know, staggered. And later, we did look for, uh, as things got crazier and crazier, you know, Kirby does receive a a little drug called Clonidine at bedtime now, Mm -hmm. which is essentially a heart pressure medication that they use as adults, which for him gets him through that wakeful period after his first cycle. And so we, we often now do get, you know, a second cycle or part of one. So he'll sleep six, seven hours. And um, it's tricky because you know, we went through a phase where he would leave the house in the middle of the night and go to the 24 hour convenience store oh down the street. And, you know, and if, uh, and how do you manage that? As they get older, they can figure out their way around most locks. Can't, lock the house down too much what if there's a fire you know and anyhow the yeah (laughs) shoplift the same three things and the (laughs) night clerk would call us up and we would go over and pay up early in the morning but you know so these are the things and these are just our things but every family has their thing if you're raising a kid on the spectrum
0: yeah what are your hopes for him for the future
1: it's funny, you know. I remember telling the Easter seals person when she asked that question, well, you know, we hope we can, you know, really get him the support he needs early on and he'll be able to go to college and have a job and do these things, you know. And at this stage, we're just hopeful that he has a happy, healthy life. And we adjust our hopes for the future kind of daily, uh, because we don't know where he's going to end up, Mm -hmm. and probably won't for another fifteen years. As I said, you've got that huge makeover of the prefrontal cortex between sort of fifteen and Mm thirty, and um, so we're only halfway down the journey. We'll see what he can be, but. I have two themes. One is I don't want to stop trying to educate him on on reading and math, you know, the basic things that you need in life until we're further down the track. That was my remark about our education system stopping too soon, Mm -hmm. switching to life skills. And we have a number of our circle friends who are in the various trades. And, you know, I like to do trades-oriented projects, like plumbing, carpentry, woodworking, different things. And you know, he comes along and he's a helper. And, you know, I could imagine a time when, you know, he was under the wing of somebody and he was the person to help carry and hand tools and do this and do that. Maybe not the person with the expert knowledge, right? So it'd be nice for him to find some gainful employment, some way to feel, because this population also wants to feel, again, they have social needs, they want friends, they want to feel like they're contributing. So finding a way for that to work is important. And that's, kind of one of the future things that we have in mind for Autism Village. So as the community grows and as we get more small businesses that maybe people put in that are naturally friendly towards the autism population, and as we have more businesses that come into our autism-friendly program, we hope to put up a job board. Mm -hmm. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, so that we can match the community, sharing ratings and reviews with work opportunities. And you know, there's lots of big companies that are doing this. Uh, Microsoft and, and others have programs to hire people on the spectrum. But, you know, not everybody's ready to move to Redmond, Washington, or not everybody has a software savant at the higher functioning level of the spectrum. But there are a lot of kids that would happily, you know, assemble pizza boxes and help in a pizza shop all day long. Right. And so the idea of a job board that's very Craigslisty that connects our community with businesses near them that are willing to take on somebody on the spectrum is, is definitely on our roadmap. And what's great for the businesses is, is that these kids find basic work rewarding in a way that a lot of other kids maybe don't at, at their at their age or older. Um, and they come with a support group generally to help them be successful. So when you hire somebody on the autism spectrum, you often get family and friends that are there to try and support them and make it work. And so to the extent that you can be flexible, you're maybe getting a whole lot for a little bit of money when you hire mm-hmm. somebody from the autism spectrum.
0: And I think we can learn a lot, the rest of us, what you call the neurotypical crowd. There's just so much to learn, what's important in life and slowing down. And it's amazing what we can be taught through folks like Kirby.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's life lessons exactly like that. I also think there's some fascinating stuff to learn about ways that different brains work. You know, we, we start to talk about this as neurodiversity instead of disability. Because these folks have abilities, they're just different abilities, and if you read books Like from Temple Grandin, who's an autist, uh, maybe the most famous one, Mm -hmm. like taking in pictures or um, some of the books she's written about how animals uh, maybe and and the visual part of the animal brain and the autist brain are similar. Of course, there's some savants in the autism spectrum. Um, I caution your listeners that beware the inverse of the corollary. So an unusual number of savants are on the autism spectrum, but a very small number of people on the autism spectrum are savants. So um, mm. don't go and say to your parents or friends, get an autism diagnosis, like, well, is your child brilliant at math or what? Because it's the universe that doesn't work. But, you know, the large majority of autists are just typical people. But um, interestingly, uh, there's a massive aunt that's on the autism spectrum that wrote a book, Born on a Blue Day. Fascinating view into how his brain works.
0: Born on a Blue um, Day. The- is that what it's called?
1: Born on a Blue Day, okay. his book. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's an amazing cast: pianist Matt Savage, who's a who's an artist, and so there's interesting views from the higher functioning crowd that can articulate the way their brain works. And there's more and more books coming out, and I think it's fascinating for us neurotypical folks because you know we really do get a view into a completely different operating system. Yeah, you know, in these in these brains,
0: right. I love the phrase neurodiversity. Well, I'm learning all kinds of new phrases here. Telfer, what do you want want people to know about autism that they may not know other than what you've shared?
1: Geez, I just want them to be aware and curious, right? Because the level of understanding is still low. And as parents and as a community, what folks with autism and families with loved ones with autism really need is a world where people understand and so can at least when it's appropriate, help make things work out for a positive outcome. So, there's a wonderful book from an author, her name is uh, Janet Nussbaum, called The 10 Things Everyone with Autism Wishes You Knew. And there's a free abstract of that on her website. You can Google it. But, you know, what I guess I want people to take away is listen, this is a large and growing population and be curious about it and understand it just a little bit because most of the time just offering a hand or a kind word or something is all that's needed versus kind of putting your head in the sand because you don't really know what you don't know and you're afraid to do the wrong thing. So Mm -hmm. I guess that would be my final thought on what I hope folks take away.
0: And where can listeners learn more about Autism Village?
1: AutismVillage.com is the uh, main website for the Yelp-like service, and the apps are free on iTunes and Google Play. And then AutismFriendly.com is the main access for the training for anybody that's interested in taking the training or businesses that are interested in it for their staff.
0: Tougher words. he's the CEO and founder, along with his son Kirby, of Autism Village. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to the books, etc. that Tuffer has mentioned during the interview. And you will find links on the AgeWise website to Autism Village, Autism Friendly. Tuffer, thanks so much for being on the show, and keep up the great work.
1: Thanks for having me me. Obviously, I couldn't turn down an interview opportunity from somebody named Janet, so um, <laughs> It was great to be
0: here. <laughs> Thanks, Topher. Bye. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, And it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.